You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, Brian Kaneda from Californians United for Responsible Budget giving a victory lap after a judge gave the final approval to close a California state prison in Susanville. It is a win, and it's also important to close this chapter around CCC, the prison in Susanville that's closing because additional prison closures seem to be on the horizon. Yeah, that, that's a waste of goddamn money. We all need to work together collectively, people inside and outside of prisons to shut a lot of them down. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. Yesterday was the 51st anniversary of the Attica Prison Rebellion, in which more than 1,200 prisoners at the New York State Prison seeking better living conditions and human rights took over the institution from September 9th until September 13th of 1971. Law enforcement ended the four-day prison occupation with a hail of gunfire that killed 39 people, including nine prison guards and 30 prisoners. The Attica uprising had a historic impact, leading to specific reforms and also impacting how we think about the political power of prisoners and the impact of prison conditions. 51 years later, California's prison system is vast. With a network of detention centers throughout the state, we have dozens of massive facilities largely as a result of a major boom in prison construction in the 90s and the early 2000s as the war on drugs ravaged communities and criminalized poor people's economic activity. Today, a day after the 51st anniversary of the Attica Rebellion, we'll take a look at how California is managing deteriorating prisons and the effects of those conditions on prisoners. Our state's prisons are undercrowded and in intense disrepair, and as a result, the state has begun a process of closing prisons. But that's not as easy as Governor Gavin Newsom signing off on the closure. A prison in Susanville, a small town in one of the farthest reaches of the state, just east of the Lassen National Forest and by the Northern California-Nevada border, was signed off to be closed by early this past summer. But some locals concerned with the economic hit to the community were able to get a court to put a hold on that closure. Big news, though, last week, a judge has removed that injunction. That means that the prison is going to be closed imminently. We're joined today by Brian Kaneda, the deputy director of Californians United for a Responsible Budget, or CURB, which is an organization dedicated to reducing imprisonment in our state by developing deep economic analyses about how it's actually financially better for all of us to reduce prisons. Brian, thank you for joining us. Good day and so happy to be here. So in our conversation, I'm going to start with the bird's eye view, then zoom in to focus on the imminent closure of the prison in Susanville, and then zoom out to talk about what comes next from an economic perspective about our state's prison system and its surrounding budget. Lastly, we'll talk about a very local jail closure here in Alameda County. But first, you've been involved in this prison closure plan for a while. Is Curb taking this as a big win? Yes, it's, it is a win. And it's also important to close this chapter around CCC, the prison in Susanville that's closing because uh, additional prison closures seem to be on the horizon. And it's really important that uh, you took the time today to mark 
the Attica uprising anniversary because what we really know is that prisons don't keep people safe. Uh, we know that they're sites of uh, toxic land, uh, harm, and we all need to work together collectively, people inside and outside of prisons, to shut a lot of them down. Let's zoom out for a bit before we go deeper into the current situation in Susanville. California prison population has been shrinking, and this might be a surprise to many of us in the state and even just generally in this country where conversations about law and order and police funding are so central in political conversations and political positioning, right? Can you talk about prison population growth and prison construction into the 2000s? And then what changed? Yeah, well, you know, I think the history of prison expansion in California is one of the great contemporary tragedies. Um, and you spoke a little bit about it in your intro, but we know that since the 70s, that the pace and scale of incarceration really grew rapidly as all of these racist, tough on crime laws were passed to both incarcerate huge swaths of our population especially black, brown, indigenous, and low-income folks, and sentence them for longer and longer periods of time between about 1984 and 2013, California constructed 22 prisons, which cost taxpayers billions of dollars and also required massive ongoing funding allocations for maintenance and the operation of warehouses, uh, warehouses for human beings filled with all of our most marginalized community members. So the state prison population jumped to really staggering heights from about 60,000 people to about 175,000 people. So this is really scary and, and it's, a, it's a crisis. This is an incarceration crisis that we're still dealing with the ramifications of. Uh, today. But we know that a lot of the efforts by community and some really important uh, legislation and the Supreme Court ruling helped us get to where we are today with uh, a prison population that's closer to 100,000, which is historically low. It's as low as it's been since the 1990s. Can we talk specifically about some of those legislations and the Supreme Court ruling? I'm assuming you're talking about the Brown v. Plata ruling. Um, just to like dive in and get a real clear sense of, um, you know, what's what shifted? You said from 1984 to 2013, there were 22 new prisons, brand new prisons that were built and yeah. the, the prison population skyrocketed. That's not because people became so much worse people in the streets, right? This was <laughs> yeah, around that's exactly criminalization. So, so what, what, how did, how did the state lock that many more people up? And then what are some of the actual legislations that happened? To yeah. Raise? I mean, I think that's um, exactly that. Like there, the truth about a prison uh, is that if it's open, it will be filled. So we know as a lot of these prisons were built to be economic engines for rural communities, for instance, the necessity to make these facilities utilized was really pushed by local communities and state 
government. So that's why when we're talking about prison closure, we really mean close it down. We mean shut it down. We mean tear it down. We mean repurpose it to something better that's of real value to the community and produces jobs that heal instead of harm. Because if these prisons are open, people are going to look to fill them. And yeah, you mentioned uh, Plata v. Brown and also the Coleman lawsuit around 2011. Um, that was an important milestone in American institutional reform litigation. Uh, so in Plata v. Brown, the Supreme Court affirmed a district court order that basically required California to remedy its constitutional deficits in prison, medical, and mental health care. And they needed to do that by reducing prison overcrowding. Uh, so this is something that Jerry Brown finally addressed. But the way they did it really failed to acknowledge the state's reliance on incarceration. Um, it failed to fully repeal the draconian sentencing laws that led to the crisis. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it failed to take more meaningful steps towards decarceration. So California kind of attempted to address overcrowding while in avoiding the early release of incarcerated people. And, and a, a lot of that was through this strategy that's called public safety realignment or AB 109. So realignment kind of shifted the responsibility of numerous penal programs from the state to county jurisdiction. So tens of thousands of people who are serving time in state prisons uh, for, you know, less, less serious convictions. Uh, a lot of those folks got moved to county jail. So th there was a, there was a shuffling, but it really took a combination of court ordered programs, citizen ballot initiatives and sentencing reform policies, a lot of which were led by impacted communities and grassroots organizations to really do what CDCR was unwilling to do, which is move toward a real decarceration strategy. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of powerful work that happened, even if some of it was uh, flawed in different ways. I can think of three citizen ballot initiatives that took really powerful steps. Prop 36, uh, Prop 47, Prop 57, a lot of these reclassifying a certain felonies to misdemeanors, um, some resentencing for the three strikes law convictions and expanding parole eligibility. Um, we also passed a lot of good legislation. A good example is a, a bill that Curb ran called SB 483. And this is just, just recently passed uh, the California uh, uh, legislature and it's waiting for Governor Newsom to sign. And what this does, SB 43, the RISE Act, it retroactively applies the elimination of a three-year sentence enhancement for prior drug convictions. Uh, so uh, there's also um, ways that it will impact tens of thousands of years of people's sentences between that and how it impacts the, the one-year enhancement for prior felonies, which was repealed in an earlier bill. So there is this really complicated web of different types of advocacy that has produced the low prison populations, the lower prison populations that we see today. So it, it's really 
a community victory that we've even come as far as we have, and there's still so much further to go. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host today, Jesse Strauss, and we're in conversation with Brian Caneda, Deputy Director of Californians United for a Responsible Budget, or CURB, which has been involved in a coalition of organizations pushing for the closure of the so-called California Correctional Facility in Susanville. I use quotes because I have a hard time thinking of prisons as corrections for anything. Mm-hmm. Um but let's move the conversation to Susanville. So so you gave us all this background on the growth of prison populations in California and now the more recent over the past 10 or so years shrinking of that population. Um what's happening in Susanville? Can you talk about the prison itself? Um what kinds of conditions has it been and how have those conditions been affecting prisoners inside? Yeah. Well, the quotes are are pretty applicable. Um, When we talk about uh, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, um, sometimes when we're spelling out the acronym, we use a lowercase r because we know that there's not a lot of rehabilitation going on in a lot of these prisons. And CCC specifically, this is a 60-year-old prison six decades old and the price tag for repairs there are clocking in at about 500 million dollars i just want to mention for our listeners that ccc is the acronym for california correctional center it is the prison in susanville that's slated to be closed yes and along with this expensive repair price tag as you mentioned earlier it's really far out uh it's near the nevada border uh and we know that closing this prison from independent analysis from the state will save Californians about $122 million per year. And this was one of two prisons that Governor Newsom named for closure um, about uh, two years ago in the state budget. Um, So this prison especially, we've had people report that it's one of the most racist prisons that they've ever done time in, which is really scary. And in May, um, people incarcerated in CCC filed an amicus brief, um, basically demanding that the process to close the prison be expedited because it's been stymied in the courts for the past year um, because of the town of Susanville's lawsuit that they brought against the state to slow the prison from closing. And you know, the amicus brief is pretty terrifying. It really talks about, you know, problems with uh, toilets that don't flush, algae, uh, dilapidated conditions in the in the prison, um, real scary danger that's posed by the fires that occur. Uh, last year, California had the Dixie Fire, which is one of the largest in its history, and the people incarcerated in CCC, didn't have the right uh, protective equipment. There was ash covering everything. There were no phones. And nobody really articulated what a safety plan would be for folks if the fire came toward the prison. And we know significant portions of Lassen County, where Susanville is located, was actually in a lot of danger. So um, it's pretty scary there. And, and throughout the entire litigation, 
the prisoners in CCC have been treated either either as revenue, which is sort of what the lawsuit argues that that the prison can't close or shouldn't close because what will happen to the town? That's how reliant folks in the town are on the prison as part of their economy. Um, and folks and folks working on the amicus brief really urge the court to do the right thing because this prison has to close sooner rather than later. You know, when you were talking earlier about the uh, expansion of California's prison system in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, one thing I wrote down from what you said was that when prisons are built, they're built partly as economic engines for small communities or rural communities. You also said that the truth about a prison is that it will be filled. I guess I want to ask if if a prison is built as an economic engine for small communities, what is the economic impact both of a prison being built in a small community and then in this particular case, like what happens to the economic engine in the community? when it's removed or taken away? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and there's a lot to unpack when we're thinking about prison closure in general, because we know the truth is, is California state-owned prison closure is a complex issue and there's a lot of moving parts. And those include concerns around labor, job loss, and and economic infrastructure of rural communities, including Susanville. And these are real concerns, but what they ignore is the research of experts in these fields, which tells us that prisons are actually terrible economic engines and that, you know, there's a lot of other economies that can do much, much better than this. Susanville is still an impoverished community, even with these prison jobs. and. You know, these are important things to think about. But even as we consider them, we shouldn't forget why we have to close facilities like CCC in the first place. You know, just like people were hesitant to get rid of slavery because it would impact them economically, closing prisons is a racial justice issue. It's an ongoing humanitarian crisis. And, you know, there's a public health interest there is an environmental justice interest. There's um, an economic justice interest alongside uh, the racial justice issues. These are all things that are connected. And reducing prison spending provides an opportunity to activate these wasted resources so that we can take care of all of our community members, right? So it's not just the people in the town of Susanville, although, you know, those are needs that might need to be uh, addressed. And, you know, we do think the state and Governor Newsom, they do have an obligation to provide a just transition, a just transition to sustainable economies for any person impacted by prison closure. And this is something that we're learning from the environmental community, moving away from economies that are extractive, like big oil, prisons, prisons are an extractive economy, and move toward sustainable jobs that have an actual viable future that pay a living wage. Um, these are jobs that would, you know, heal instead of hurt people. Because we know prison jobs might pay okay, but they're unhealthy, trauma-inducing roles and toxic environments. And all the data bears 
that out. So I guess what we're saying is California should be in dialogue with stakeholders to provide and support new economic opportunities in Susanville. Yes. Um, but also we need to prioritize using that money for reentry services for formerly incarcerated people um, to help them join these new economies that we're talking about. And I think that's what we're really envisioning is that there is a feature we want to build where everyone is able to meet their needs, survive and thrive. While we need to recognize economic impacts, economies can't be the only driver of decision-making politically. Exactly. For our listeners, again, you're listening to Law and Disorder. We are talking with Brian Kaneda, Deputy Director of Californians United for a Responsible Budget, or CURB. CURB's work is uh, particularly focused on economic analyses and understanding the economic impacts of prisons, of how they could be closed, and how the closure of prisons can um, impact our state budget. Can you talk a little bit about the work of CURB, how that analysis was able to be brought into the push to close the prison in Susanville? And then and then we'll talk about what's next in California. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, our coalition of more than 80 organizations uh, is statewide, and we're called Californians United for a Responsible Budget. And, you know, it, it's a kind of an innocuous, innocuous name, but really a budget is a statement about our values. And what we're saying is that a budget that really represents all Californians focuses on the things that we know keep everyone safe. And that's healthcare, jobs, the environment, all of the things that we know contribute to a positive society. Our budget advocacy is demanding that we shift wasteful spending away from prisons, jails, and police toward this new vision of public safety that can help strengthen our most marginalized communities. And the California state budget for corrections is about $18.6 billion. So we often ask the question, you know, what would you do as a community member with $18.6 billion? And most of our folks can think of a better way to spend that money than human caging. And, you know, we've done our own fiscal analysis of prison cost savings, but people don't have to take our word for it. Uh, the state's own nonpartisan legislative analyst office estimates that California could save about $1.5 billion annually by closing around five prisons. And CURB, in the work that we've done with the report that we released called the People's Plan for Prison Closure, uh, we actually think California could close at least 10 prisons by 2025, capturing that cost savings in order to support the people who have been most impacted by the incarceration crisis, which is formerly incarcerated people and, and Black folks and other marginalized communities. 
and also make sure that we invest in these towns um, that will see some kind of economic impact from prisons closing. So I want to return to the People's Plan for Prison Closure. That's a report that Curb uh, put out uh, about a year ago. But first, what's our current California state plan moving forward around prison expenditures and prison closures? You said that there's a projection of how funding could be saved from the state budget. I'm wondering, does the closure of the prison in Susanville pave the way for an easier route to other other prison closures in California? And, and what's Newsom's policy around prison closure moving forward? Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the eighteen point six billion dollar question <laughs> is what is the plan? Um, because we see through the situation in Susanville that without a concrete plan for prison closure, in fact, there are a lot of things that can be uh, fraught. Uh, and we need to do our best as a state to model what it looks like to successfully close prisons. Uh, there are other examples in New York and, and uh, across the country and in other countries of successful prison closures. But we know that people look to California um, when issues of criminal legal reform are happening. So we have a responsibility to do this correctly. And our campaign that Curb co-leads uh, Close California Prisons, yes, we successfully pushed Governor Newsom to enshrine the possibility of prison closures in the budget for 2022-23. So that's powerful, even though, you know, it's not exactly that passionate language that we're looking for, the possibility of prison closures, but it's a pretty big win to have him put it on paper. And our campaign organized thousands of people to sign petitions and write letters and give public comment to state legislators and the governor's office. And those efforts, those efforts paid off. That language isn't important. Um, And again, as you mentioned about prison closures being easier in the future, he included this um, uh, bill in the state budget. Um, Newsom and the legislature passed AB 200, which actually changed the prison closure criteria so that they can more effectively close prisons in the future. So basically what it says is uh, the state can close whatever prison it wants. And that's one of the reasons why the lawsuit in Susanville was resolved and why that prison can finally close um, is because of the leadership uh, that Newsom showed in, in addressing this issue. So we want to give him a little bit of credit, but now the state has to produce a concrete plan to really further the will of a huge portion of the electorate, electorate that wants less people in prison and less prisons in our state. So that's what we're calling for is in the January budget. So that's when uh, the the budget season starts. In the January budget, we're looking for a concrete plan to close more prisons in California um, and also hoping to see more prisons uh, specifically named for closure. Yeah, we were talking earlier about um, if you build it, they'll fill it. Yes. For prisons. I'm wondering, do you know what happens to these actual facilities? I had a conversation here on Law and Disorder on KPFA last week with Nicole Porter from the Sentencing Project, who released a report about repurposing former prison facilities 
And one thing she talked about is the warning around soft closures, which mm-hmm. was a, a phrase I hadn't heard before, but soft closures meaning that a prison facility would no longer be used to house people for some temporary amount of time. The building would still be maintained and then potentially repurposed and used by, for example, some other type of detention process like uh, immigration and customs enforcement facility. What happens when to an actual facility when California closes a prison? Yeah, these are great questions. Um, and I read the sentencing project report and the work um, that folks are doing to really talking about, you know, what happens next, because this is the positive reality we're all contending with is making these, making these decisions. And yeah, we use the term warm shutdown. Uh, so I don't know which is worse, <laughs> soft closure or warm shutdown, but sure. uh, they mean the same thing. And it's precisely that, that you know, a lot of these facilities have the potential to close, but what does closure actually mean? So we mentioned earlier that the state of California selected two prisons to close. One is um, CCC, which we've been talking about. And the other one is called DBI, the uh, Dual Vocational Institute. And this prison closed without a lot of fanfare. Part of the reason why is because there's other economic opportunities in that community. So it was less of a blow to what they perceive as their way of life. Now, the economic opportunities that are there are a little problematic. It's a lot of like Amazon warehouses and stuff like that. So, you know, that's not necessarily something that we're very excited about. But it it explains that if people have jobs and a way to maintain their livelihood, that actually confronts a lot of the issues that prison closure raises in people's minds who are hesitant about it. And, you know... We think the prison should be torn down and the land returned to the indigenous population where uh, the prison occupies. You know, we all live on occupied land here and uh, there are relatively easy ways to identify which tribal lands prisons are built atop of. Um, And now we understand that, you know, that might not always line up with the reality of what's going to take place. And that's why reports like the sentencing projects are so important because it really helps us think through what besides a prison, because, you know, really, and this includes communities like Susanville, and a lot of people have talked about this, nobody's dream for their town is a prison. And this is a really important role that the community should be playing and that the state should be engaging with folks in these prison towns about is what are their dreams for their community? And there's a lot of examples um, uh, throughout the country of positive transformation um, from prisons to things like movie studios and event space. There's all of these ideas that could be in play um, and nothing should be off limits with the exception of it staying a prison. And we know that when people say things like, let's make it a mental health treatment center, that that couldn't possibly have bigger quotes around it. Because generally what they're talking about is a locked and closed facility that's just a prison by another name. So these are these are really great, great questions. And I think that there's a lot of good ideas. Uh, and ultimately, 
the community should be empowered to have some self-determination and the state should support the decision-making that happens locally. So communities should absolutely have power to have some self-determination in what they want. And most of us don't specifically want a prison in our community. But a lot of the work that Curb does is about specifically imagining what could be there. You all released a report called The People's Plan for Prison Closure a little over a year ago. It it includes all kind of background and analysis, un- understanding the the state's priorities. It includes the plan that you referred to earlier that Curb presented to close the 10 worst California prisons by 2025. It also, and I, I, I want to explore this one more, it has a plan for reinvesting carceral dollars to bolster our economy and create jobs for community members and former California Department of Corrections employees. Can we, can we talk about the ideas that you all presented specifically about how could we use these dollars? Now, I know that you're also talking about communities having self-determination in, in deciding how their economies function locally, but what does CURB think we should do with those dollars? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of ideas. <laughs> um, and you, you mentioned the people's plan and we are really proud to produce something that could be a roadmap for prison closure that touches on all these issues that we've talked about today and provide you know, our ideas about what a vision could be for a stronger California, which does include um, the closure of at least eight more prisons in addition to the two uh, that are already going to close. And we spoke a little bit about the ideas around reimagining public safety. And here in Los Angeles, I'm a member of the Reimagine LA County Coalition that helped pass uh, Measure J, which uh, set aside 10% of net county costs to go toward uh, alternative to incarceration initiatives and community-based alternatives to care. And those are the kind of things that we spend a lot of time um, trying to educate people about. We want to support survivors. So that means funding trauma care, including at emergency rooms, providing support for all people who experience harm, even when the prosecution can't prove a case in court. So this isn't about finding people guilty or innocent. Um, It's about addressing whatever harm people are saying occurs in a non-carceral way. And we can think of things like transformative and restorative justice um, when we're talking about the kind of support survivors deserve. Um, We want to help people struggling with substance use disorder, which, you know, requires investing in harm reduction techniques and scaling up treatment facilities and ending barriers to employment and housing for those um, for those people who are impacted by by drugs. Um, this includes increasing mental health treatment. That's a big priority for us. Um, and, you know, there's also community-based violence prevention programs um, that have been really successful that use credible messengers to interrupt cycles of violence. I think a lot of um, the intervention work that happens in South Central, um, led by community members. There's all sorts of priorities that we know investments in keep people safe, reentry, 
making sure that formerly incarcerated people have the funds uh, that we need. And and you mentioned this as well, uh, the 10 worst prisons to close, you know, there's no such thing as a bad prison to close. And our report um, isn't necessarily prescriptive, uh, but the state seemed to have a problem coming up with which prisons and articulating why. And we know that the best people to give feedback about that are the people who are most harmed by incarceration. So that's currently incarcerated people. So the report also includes this survey of about 2000 system impacted people um, who cited the best criteria to use to select more prisons to close. And that was unsafe health conditions, um, which are the most overcrowded, how much it costs to be incarcerated there, uh, how far the prison is away from loved ones, and the highest number of homicides and suicides. So, you know, what we hope to do is give the state and our community, people, anyone who's curious about prison closure, an idea about not only how this would work, um, but how we could envision moving forward with the selection process. You are listening to Law in Disorder. We're in conversation with Brian Caneda, the Deputy Director of Californians United for a Responsible Budget. That's CURB. Um, and we will have a link to the People's Plan for Prison Closure, CURB's report, on our website and in our podcast version of the show's show notes. Um, Brian, I want to bring in your expertise in economic framing of prison closures to a really local level. I'm wondering if you can help us to imagine how one very specific thing could be different here in Alameda County, where we produce this show. Um, I learned from a public records request that the Alameda County Sheriff's Department is spending millions of dollars to maintain a jail that was closed in 2019. The North County Jail, also called Glen Dyer, has been totally empty, serving no function whatsoever. And even just between January and June of this year, the sheriff's department spent over a million dollars on maintaining this empty jail. Now, there doesn't seem to be any prospect to ever reopen this building, but our county tax dollars are going into maintaining it. I mentioned that last week I interviewed Nicole Porter, who was the lead researcher on that report from the sentencing project about repurposing former imprisonment institutions that had been closed. Nicole and I talked about the soft closure idea in, in maintaining a building so that it could be repurposed for another detention purpose. I, I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit more about the soft closure idea. You know, this, this million plus dollars a year that the sheriff's department is spending on maintaining this empty building Honestly, it's a drop in the bucket of the sheriff's yeah. budget. But on such a local level, those funds spent on anything else would be a much better use of our tax dollars than maintaining a empty building. How could we approach this from an organizing perspective? And do you have any other thoughts on this closed jail in Alameda County? Yeah, that that's a waste of goddamn money. Um, and, you know, it's a scary it's a scary idea um, that we all know is true that a million dollars is just a drop in the bucket for virtually any law enforcement budget across this country. And uh, we also can think of, gosh, all of these community-based organizations are uh, dramatically underfunded. Um, and we've been experiencing a defunding of healthcare and mental health care uh, for decades. 
So, you know, there is most definitely a better way to use that million dollars. And I'm sure you and, and anyone else who's organizing in that area um, could probably think off the top of your head, some people who could do a lot better good, um, a lot more good with that, with that money than this terrible waste of uh, your taxpayer dollars. And Curb uh, sits on the executive team of Justice LA, and I represent Curb um, as a part of Justice LA and here here in LA County. And the work there has been really, really powerful. And not only did Justice LA, with all of our partners and the power of community members, stop uh, a jail plan, a $3.6 billion jail plan, um, we are also moving to shut down Men's Central Jail, which is this terrible, terrible, awful site, even even compared to uh, the terribleness of uh, some other facilities. So this is like, you know, the one of the worst of the worst. Uh, so we're going to have to think about a lot of stuff like that, too. And we do a lot of advocacy with our board of supervisors that controls the sheriff's budget. And we've been really successful here in changing the narrative about the sheriff's department and how the sheriff's department spends money. And there's a lot more awareness uh, about the malfeasance, about the violence and about the, the waste through um, this work that we're doing with budget advocacy. So we have Justice LA working towards uh, dismantle. And I mentioned earlier, reimagine LA County, really thinking about bills, like what's going to take its place. And something that's really powerful, I think a powerful framework when we're thinking about things like this is pushing Board of Supervisors, pushing city councils to invest in participatory budgeting. So PB, participatory budgeting, um, this is where real people get real money and decide where it goes in their community through direct democracy. And this is a really strong model. Um, There are lots of examples uh, throughout the world of this being effective. Um, that can take a pot of money and let the community determine where to allocate it. And that's why um, budget advocacy is so important and why it's so important that people understand their local, county, state, even the federal budget where, where possible and know that this is, you know, it's about the money and how can we engage with organizations on the front lines who are part of the grassroots, who are doing budget advocacy and making the observations, like what you just pointed out around this waste of taxpayer dollars and the demands to shift these resources towards the things that we know are going to protect our communities. So we need to all collaborate uh, and, and we all need to communicate with each other and, and educate about our wins and our losses um, and connect with each other who are doing the same work and plug in and plug into uh, organizations that we know are doing budget advocacy and jail closure work on the front lines. Well, Brian, I'm looking forward to continuing to collaborate and expanding the conversation. But for today's show, we are out of time. You are listening to Law and Disorder. We've been in conversation with Brian Kaneda, Deputy Director of Californians United for a Responsible Budget, or CURB, about their major organizing win last week when a judge gave the final sign-off on the closure of the so-called California Correctional Facility, the prison in Susanville. Congratulations on the win, and thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Thank you so much for having us, and we're going to close more California prisons. 
You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about our topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. That's D-I-S. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, family.